Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to bow before you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that there is still something in this world that we can count on. And thank you for your promises that never fail. Thank you for the promise that for whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it was founded upon a rock. Father, we just pray for the power of thy spirit to strengthen each one of us today to build our lives on what you have written and to claim your promises in every situation. Bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I have really struggled with this subject that we're currently looking at on church and state. We're obviously in the fourth part. Uh, the thing that I've struggled with has been this, is that I've always thought, and I still do believe, that the basis of every sermon should be the Bible. And and the spirit of prophecy as we study here amongst ourselves. And it's been a real struggle for me doing this series because as you're going to find this morning, while we are talking about biblical subjects and a principle that underlines all of Scripture, but I don't have any verses in here. And that bothered me. That really has bothered me. Because the Bible is the source of power. So that's been a struggle I've had as I've gone through this series. Now, how have I gotten around it and said, well, why am I giving a study? Why are we studying something where there's no Bible verses in it? Or no, well, few spirit of prophecy statements. Because, folks, what we're studying here is the very essence this is, this is the third angel's message. Um, you know, I know Ellen White says, and, and rightly so, that justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. And the essence of that, of justification by faith is, is that we are looking to Jesus Christ and Him alone to save us from our sins. That is justification by faith. And this issue of church and state boils down to one thing, one principle and one principle only, and that is who, who ultimately is going to tell us how to worship God? Who is it? Are we going to accept what the state says? Is somebody going to step in between us and our maker and tell us how to worship God? That is the final, ultimate issue on this planet. We call it Sabbath and Sunday. That's the issue, folk. And this issue has been going on for 6,000 years. Who, who are we going to worship? Who is going to tell us how to worship? Is the Bible going to? Is the Bible going to tell us? Or... Is some person going to step in 
and tell us how to worship God. This morning, we're going to look at what I call Church State Part 4, Unknown Stepchildren. You say, unknown stepchildren? What does that have to do with church and state? Well, if I were to ask you who were the great reformers during the 16th century, who would you say? Tell me, who would you say? Martin Luther, absolutely. Who else? Ulrich Zwingli. Okay, who else? Calvin. Okay, John Huss was a little bit before, but he was a great reformer. Okay, John Calvin in the 16th century. Philip Melanchthon of Germany. Okay, anybody? William Tyndale of England. Okay. Wycliffe was before. He was a little bit before uh, John Huss. But nevertheless, he was a great reformer, Fernando, absolutely. Jerome was with John Huss in Bohemia. That was right around the late 1300s into the early 14. Okay, John Huss was burned at the stake right around 1415 and Jerome shortly thereafter. Okay. That was John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, yeah. See, those are the people we always hear about. And folk, not for one moment are we denouncing the great work that God gave those men to do and the great work they did for God in the world. However, there are others that came about on the heels of Luther, on the heels of Zwingli and Calvin throughout Europe. And it's from them that we come today. It's from them. It's not from Luther. We're not Lutherans. We're not Calvinists. We're not, uh, you know, Swiss Reform from Ulrich Zwingli. We're not from them. We actually come from the stepchildren. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Next slide, sweetie. To discuss Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin in the context of being halfway men, that's difficult. You go back and read Great Controversy, and, you know, as Ellen White talks about Luther and Zwingli, you know, you get goosebumps. I get goosebumps up and down my back, and I say, Lord, I want that spirit. That, that made those men stand before the Holy Roman Empire for you. That's the, I want that spirit. So when, but when you study history and you find them being called halfway men, I just cringe. I cringed when I read that. But it's true. It's true. God used these men in a mighty way as they stood for His Word. And what was their great cry? The great cry of the Reformation? Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. The Bible and the Bible alone. That was their great cry. But in some things, they only went halfway. There were things that Luther taught that he was shown right from the Bible. Things that Zwingli was shown. And Calvin 
right from the word of God, they pulled away. They said, no, we're not going there. We are not going there. And the reason why was because it would cause a split between those men and the state or the dukes or the electors. It would cause a splitting and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli pulled back. So they only went so far in believing sola scriptura. It's a fact of history and we're going to look at that today. Next slide, sweetie. The second front. As the Reformation started unfolding, it was Luther, it was Zwingli, it was Tyndale in England, it was the Petri brothers in Sweden. These were the people that were in the forefront in the Reformation. But there then developed what history calls a second front or stepchildren, if you will. I want you to notice this. It's in a book by Louis Verdun. It's called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. It says this, before the Reformation was 10 years along. Now, when do we say the Reformation began? Okay, 1500s. When do we pinpoint and say the Reformation started with this event? What event started? Okay, Luther nails the 95 arguments or the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church or Chapel right there in Wittenberg. Okay? And that was a protest against the indulgences of John Tetzel. And John Tetzel was selling indulgences to make money to build St. Peter's in Rome. Okay? That's what happened. And Luther nailed these 95 arguments or theses on the door of the church and said, here are 95 reasons why I cannot go along with indulgences. And if anybody wants to discuss this further, you can meet me at thus and thus a place. That began the Protestant, the protest against the tyranny of the papacy. That was in 1517. Okay? 1517 was when Luther began his protest. And the reasons that Luther gave for why he could not embrace indulgences was because they were not according to the Bible. They were not based in Scripture. Now, Ten years old, so we're looking in the late 1520s. It had become evident that not all who were rebelling against the medieval order of the papacy were of one mind and heart. It had become apparent that within the camp of the dissenters, the protesters, there were deep-seated differences. Tensions of such dimensions that a parting of the ways was in the making. It had become plain that the reformers would, as a result, be obliged to deploy some of their own forces to a second front. 
they would have to divide their energies between two opponents, Rome and the radicals. Now, the radicals, the radicals were divided into two groups. There were the biblical radicals and there were the extremist radicals. And the way you distinguish them was simply this. The biblical radicals said, I want to follow what the Bible says. The extremist radicals said, the way that we're going to defeat Rome, the way that we're going to reform the world, is by taking up arms. And there were both groups. Both groups that developed within 10 years after Martin Luther's stand. From the outset, the reformers realized that the opposition that was shaping up on the second front among the radical Christians was going to be formidable, at least as formidable as the opposition from the side of the Catholics. As early as May 28, 1525, Ulrich Zwingli, in a letter to Vadian, expressed the opinion that the struggle with the Catholic party was but child's play when compared with the struggle that was erupting at the Second Front. The opening of the Second Front, or the stepchildren, affected the course of the Reformation significantly. By way of reaction to it, the Reformers backed into a corner where they would not otherwise have retreated. The opening of the Second Front caused the Reformers to go back on their former selves. You see, what was happening, folk, was Luther and Zwingli and Calvin were saying, Sola Scriptura! And along came people that composed the second front or the radicals or the stepchildren. And they said, if you do believe in sola scriptura, then why do you still baptize babies? The Bible doesn't say that. Now Luther and Zwingli and Calvin found themselves in a tizzy because if they denied infant baptism, then they would eventually have to deny the authority of the prince in religious matters. And so Luther and Zwingli and Calvin had a decision to make. Are we still going to go by sola scriptura? Or, in some of those teachings, are we going to back away and accept what Rome has always taught us. Now that was their struggle. And Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin all chose to back away from Sola Scriptura. Yes, Nellie? Absolutely, Nellie. Absolutely, Nellie. And that is why, Nellie, and that's a fantastic point you're making, there were people in the 1520s that were coming to the Sabbath. They understood the Sabbath. It was among the radicals. It was among the people called the Second Front or the stepchildren that embraced that teaching. Next slide, sweetie. 
the stepchildren believe that the Church of Christ is by definition an element in society, not society as such. Their opponents, the Reformers, as well as the Catholics, were unwilling to go along with this. They continued to look upon the Church as coextensive with society. They were sacralists. They believed that the Church and the State were one. That's what they believed. And the stepchildren came along and said, No, the Church is a part of society. It's not society itself. It's been said of late that Luther was faced with a dilemma. The dilemma of wanting both a confessional church based on personal faith and a regional church including all in a given locality. It was this dilemma that gave rise to the second front. This dilemma was a cruel one. He who thinks of the church as a community of experiential believers is bound to oppose him who thinks of it as a fellowship embracing all in a given territory. If you go back and look at what happened in Germany after Luther protested against Rome, do you know what happened? Rome was divided up into territories. This territory was Lutheran. This territory was Catholic. That meant that everybody in that territory or in that state had to be Lutheran. Not because they believed it, but because they were born into it. That's what Luther was teaching. That's why he faced opposition. Going down here, the two views cannot be combined. One cancels out the other. In the one view, the church is Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, which consists of believing folk and of them solely. In the other view, the church is Corpus Christianium, the body of a Christianized society. As we shall see, attempts have been made to combine these two, but without success. Do you know what's going on in this country today? Corpus Christianum. We are a Christian country. Have you ever heard that? We are a Christian society and our constitution is Christian. No, it's not. The people that wrote the constitution, they weren't Christians. They were deists. This is not a Christian country. This is not a Christian country. This country is not a Christian country. It's not, folks. But it's the mindset of those who think that that one day everybody in America will become Christians. By the sword. And those who say, no, I'm not going to become a part of this great big Christian country, I'm simply going to accept what the Bible says. They will be considered heretics. That's where this nation is going. When people talk about us being a Christian nation, getting back to our Christian roots, that is an absolute shredding of history. 
Absolutely, Nellie. The very founding of our country says that it's not Christian. Upon the horns of this dilemma, Luther was impalled. Not only Luther, all the rest of the reformers were torn between the same two alternatives. They one and all halted between two opinions. They one and all tried to avoid an outright choice. All tried to ride the fence. Next slide. Let's take a look at some of the things where Luther and the Second Front or Luther and the stepchildren where they had disagreement. Number one, the great reformers struggled in several biblical areas that were very prevalent at that time. The reformers were all sacralists. They believed in a sacral society that everyone was to be part of the Christian society in which they lived. There could be no deviation. Nobody could disagree with that. Everybody had to conform. That's what Luther and Calvin and Zwingli taught. They all believed in infant baptism. And that was crucial because this made a child at birth a part of the Christian community and one with everyone else. They believed that when someone didn't go along with the whole, they could be persecuted to death. The reformer became the final word. Luther became the final word. Not the Bible. Calvin became the final word in Switzerland. Zwingli was the final word. Not the Bible. Sola Scriptura was replaced with Sola Reforma. What does the Reformer say? That's why, that's why I have always said to you guys, it doesn't matter what you hear up here. Bill Hughes is not the final answer. Paul Prano is not the final answer. Dennis Samuels or whoever is sharing up here, Reggie, we are not the final answer, folk. The Word of God is the final answer. Period. Because the Reformers went this far, this resulted in their failure to see other Bible doctrines like the Sabbath, the state of the dead, communion, and others. See, they didn't see those things. But they were there in the 1520s because men rose up that we're going to look at today and they said, well, if you're going by Sola Scriptura, you can't baptize your babies. You can't go to church on Sunday. You can't believe that when a person dies, he goes straight to heaven or to hell because the Bible doesn't say that. But because Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and other reformers were sacralists because they believed that everybody in a certain location had to believe the same thing. They justified throwing out the Seventh-day Sabbath. They justified the fact that when somebody dies, he either goes to heaven or hell. And they justified baptizing babies. They justified those things. Could they prove it in the Bible? Of course not. 
course not. That's why they were called halfway men. Next slide, sweetie. One of the greatest testimonies ever uttered for the Reformation was the protest offered by the Christian princes of Germany at the Diet of Spires in 1529. You can read about that in the Great Controversy. It's an awesome chapter. The courage, faith, and firmness of those men of God gained for succeeding ages, liberty of thought and of conscience. Their protest gave to the Reformed Church the name of Protestant. Its principles are the very essence of Protestantism. As we noticed last time I was here, four days after this incredible protest of Philip Melanchthon and the princes of Germany, four days after that, at this very same diet, there was a law passed that anybody who professed the Anabaptist faith should be hunted down and slaughtered. See, it was okay for the Germans, it was okay for Melanchthon and the Protestant princes of Germany to have liberty of thought and of conscience, but it wasn't okay for the Anabaptists. Because the Anabaptists did not believe in infant baptism. Next slide. Here it is, four days later. April 23, 1529, the Catholic and Protestant princes gathered at the Diet of Spires and one of their decrees was every Anabaptist and rebaptized man and woman of the age of reason shall be condemned and brought from natural life to death by fire, sword, and the like according to the person without proceeding by the inquisition of the spiritual judges. Folk, the German princes agreed to that. Philip Melanchthon agreed to that. Speaking for Luther and himself, Melanchthon making no distinction between the quiet reformers who believed in baptism and the radicals who had used mob action. We'll get into that. There was a peasants' revolt in 1525, I believe, to war against papal oppression. Melanchthon wrote, the government is under obligation to kill them. A year later, Luther himself wrote, I approve, although it is terrible to view. Melanchthon and Luther wanted freedom to believe the Bible, but they would not give it to somebody else. Folks, the greatest gift the greatest gift that God could have given to us as human beings other than His Son is the power to choose what we want to believe about our Maker. That is the greatest gift He could have given. And any attempt, any attempt, whether we're right or whether we're wrong, any attempt to force somebody to believe as we do is wrong. Even if we're trying to force somebody to keep the seventh day Sabbath, we are wrong. That was the argument of A.T. Jones before Congress in the 1890s over the Blair Bill 
that sought to bring in Sunday laws. A.T. Jones, in his most forceful argument, said, if the Blair Bill encouraged the keeping of the Seventh-day Sabbath, he said it would be wrong because no government anywhere can legislate how we are to worship our Maker. Next slide. The Anabaptists at this time were simply trying to go by the Protestant battle cry of sola scriptura. They saw nothing in the Bible that said infants should be baptized. They saw that people should be baptized only when there is understanding of what the ordinance means and if the person is desirous of submitting their life to Christ. Philip Melanchthon and the Protestant princes killed people for this. For this. For saying you baptize people by immersion when they understand what they're doing. The Anabaptists were killed for this, folks, by people claiming to be Protestants. Why? How could they do that? Luther wanted freedom to believe what he wanted to. Melanchthon wanted freedom. The Protestant princes wanted freedom. Why wouldn't they grant it to these people? Because these people were saying, you can't baptize your infants. It's not according to the Bible. Luther said, if you resist infant baptism, you'll destroy the Christian society. Next slide. And we're going to meet some of the stepchildren that maybe some of you have never heard of. Never heard of them. In fact, there's a, a recent video, DVD, it's called Luther. It's about Martin Luther. Um, maybe some of you have seen it. It shows Luther going before the Diet of Worms in 1521. It shows him going to the Wartburg, the uh, home out there, the castle of, of Duke Frederick of Saxony. It then shows Luther going into um, Wittenberg to fight against the radicals. One of the people the movie portrays as a radical, a, a violent radical, is this man right here. Andreas Karlstadt. That's how the movie portrays the man, which I find fascinating. Because Andreas Karlstadt, number one, he was a teacher with Luther at, at Wittenberg. Andreas Karlstadt wanted to take the Reformation further. And Luther said no. During the Reformers' stay at the Wartburg, when Martin Luther was there in 1521-1522, Karlstadt introduced important changes in Wittenberg, among others in the order of the Mass. He was against the veneration of images. As an opponent of priestly celibacy, he became a married man January 19, 1522. 
Until 1523 or 24, he was a professor at Wittenberg University. That's where Luther was. But he then became a pastor in Orlamond. His theology became ever more radical. He rejected the real presence. Did you know what the real presence means? The real presence is the Catholic teaching that the priest has the power to create Christ in the bread and the juice. That's the real presence. Transubstantiation. That's right. Karlstadt said, no, the priest can't do that. That's, that's ridiculous. Karlstadt rejected the idea of the real presence. Luther came up with the idea of consubstantiation where he said that by the priest's words, Christ was actually present in those emblems. So basically, Luther agreed with the papists. Karlstadt came along and said, this service is purely symbolic that we are spiritually eating the bread of the life of Christ so it becomes our life. And we are spiritually drinking the juice. We're allowing the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. That's what Karlstadt taught. That's what we teach. But he became distanced from Luther. He was banished from Saxony in 1524, returned in 1529, but had to flee again in 1529. Why? Why was he banished from Saxony? Why did he have to flee out of Saxony? You know why? Because everybody in Saxony were Lutheran. And they were all sacralists. And nobody could disagree because the reformer said this is the way it is. So Karlstadt had to flee. Yes, Chuck? You bet, Chuck. And I would let that thing soak in my mouth and my mouth and it took for a long time. But that's what we were told. Absolutely. Chuck's comment for the DVD, he was taught that when he would take the wafer in communion, that there was actually blood that was emanating from it because it was the body of Christ. Yes, Chuck. Absolutely. At his new post, Karlstadt proceeded head-on with his radical program, the Mass in German. See, the Catholic Church for the Dark Ages said you can have the Mass in one language that nobody understood. Latin. Latin. Karlstadt, look what a radical he was. He said, we're going to hold the Mass in the language of the people. Is that radical? That's what you and I would say. Notice again, the celebrant without the ritual garments, the Eucharist, okay, the statues and images removed, and also something brand new. He forbade infant baptism. Karlstad was highly influential. Alterations were introduced in many villages around Orlemond. The same happened in the city of Jena. This region became the first with non-Catholic religious services. Folks, do we understand 
Do we understand that it does not matter what a marquee says? It does not matter what church it is. If you go into a church where the Bible is not the final authority, it's a Catholic church no matter what the marquee says. If you cannot have open, free discussion to discuss the Word of God, but it's a clamp down where somebody controls and says what you can talk about and what you can't talk about, that's Catholic. Whether it's an ad, if it says Adventist out front, it's still Catholic. For Luther not to allow people freedom, Martin Luther was a halfway man. Zwingli was a halfway man. They still were holding on to Catholic ideas. Next slide, sweetie. Andreas Karlstad. It's interesting that Andreas Karlstad, one of Luther's first theological opponents, already in 1524, notice the date, that's three years after the Diet of Worms, reflecting his pastoral concerns at Olamond. In section 9, pages 333 and 334, Karlstad said it's no secret that human beings instituted Sunday. Seventh-day Adventism just didn't come out of, the, out of mid-air and go, pop, we should keep the seventh day of the week. Karlstad was preaching that in the 1500s, three years after Lewis, Luther stood before the Diet of Firms. As for Saturday, the matter is still being debated. It's clear that you must celebrate on the seventh day and allow your servants to celebrate whenever they have worked six days. The first polemical appearance of Sabbatarianism in the Reformation coincides with Luther's knowledge of it and his refutation of the Cilician movement in this work. Luther opposed the Sabbath. If you go by sola scriptura, how can you arrive at any other conclusion? You can't. You can't. Why did Luther arrive and still keep Sunday? Because he was a sacralist at heart. Everybody had to agree on the same thing. Next slide. Here's two more. These were men, and it should not surprise us, Andreas Karlstad wanted to take the Reformation further. Luther said no. In Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli was the first reformer. But then came along some of his followers, and two of them was a man, Felix Mons and Conrad Grebel. And there were others. I just chose out two of the many. These men, it says Felix Mons became a follower of Ulrich Zwingli after he came to Zurich in 1519. When Conrad Grebel joined the group in 1521, he and Mons became friends. They questioned the mass, the nature of church and state connections, and infant baptism. There it is again. It pops up all over during that time. Around 1523, they became dissatisfied with the Reformation believing that Zwingli's plans for reform had been compromised with the city council. You see, folks, the way it worked back then in, in Switzerland, in Germany, 
If Zwingli believed something before he would preach it, you know where he'd go? He'd go to the local council. He'd say, can I preach this? If they said no, Zwingli would not go. He would not preach it. Even if it was in the Bible, he would not preach it until he got the approval of the local government. Notice what happened. You can imagine what happened. Griebel and Mann said, wait a minute, Ulrich. You said we're going to base everything we believe on the Bible. And infant baptism is not in the Bible. So we're not going to baptize our babies. And Conrad Griebel didn't. You know what happened to him in, in, in Switzerland? Guess what happened to him because he would not baptize his child. They kicked him out of Zurich. Guess what happened to Felix Manst because he preached against infant baptism. Guess what happened to him? We'll see a slide in just a few minutes. Sweetie, go ahead. Let's go to the next one. This right here is the name of the river in Zurich. This is the name of the river in Zurich where Felix Manst was drowned. And the books I read called it his third baptism. He was baptized as a baby. He was then rebaptized as an adult when he understood adult, you know, mature baptism. And his third baptism was when they buried him. This is where they drowned him in this river in Zurich. The break was complete with Zwingli and the council as they formed the first church of the Radical Reformation. The movement spread rapidly. Manst was very active. He used his language skills to translate his texts into the language of the people, worked enthusiastically as an evangelist. He was arrested on a number of occasions between 1525 and 1527. Was Manst arrested in Zurich by Roman Catholics? He was arrested by, Zwing, by Ulrich Zwingli. While he was preaching with George Blayrock in the Grunginian region, they were taken by surprise, arrested and imprisoned in Zurich at the Wellenberg prison. On March 7, 1526, the Zurich Council had passed an edict that made adult rebaptism punishable by drowning. Felix Mant simply said, the Bible says you baptize by immersion, you baptize mature people that understand what they are doing. That's all he said. He was drowned January 5, 1527. He became the first casualty of the edict and the first Swiss Anabaptist to be martyred at the hands of other Protestants. Ulrich Zwingli is the man who gave the approval for that, mur that murder. That murder. Zwingli wanted freedom for himself, but only so far for others. Next slide. Grebel and Zwingli broke over abolishing the mass. Zwingli argued before the council. See, this is where they're going. 
They went to the council. Is that, in, in Switzerland, that was the highest authority. In church matters, the highest authority, folk, can only be the Word of God. What's that? Louise, Louise, that's exactly right. And Louise, think for a minute. What is different between this papal council and the one that Luther stood before in 1521 at the Diet of Worms? There's no difference. There's no difference. So you see, if you have the mindset, if you have the mindset where the ultimate authority in church matters lies in a church council, Louise, that's papal. That's papal. And the same mentality that saw the Inquisition of the Dark Ages, given the opportunity, that same mentality would create another Inquisition in the 21st century. Let's see, when he saw that the city council was not ready for such radical changes, he chose not to break with the council. This is Wingley. And even continued to officiate at the mass until it was abolished in May of 1521, 25. Grebel saw this was an issue of obeying God rather than men, and with others could not conscientiously continue in that which they had condemned as unscriptural. These young radicals felt betrayed by Zwingli while Zwingli looked on them as irresponsible. The final question was to completely sever ties between the radicals and Zwingli was the question of infant baptism. A public debate was held. Zwingli argued against Grebel, Mance, and George Blayrock. The city council decided in favor of Zwingli and infant baptism, ordered Grebel group to cease their activities, ordered that any unbaptized infants must be submitted for baptism within eight days. Grebel had an infant daughter, Isabella, who had not been baptized, and he resolutely stood his ground. He did not intend for her to be baptized. Folk, this mentality is alive and well today. Next slide, sweetie. Alive and well. Oswald Glatz was the first Sabbath-keeping Anabaptist. First man. Born 1480 to 1546, he is the, a founder with Andreas Fisher of Sabbatarian Anabaptism. There he is. It wasn't Luther, it wasn't Zwingli, it wasn't Calvin. It was Oswald Glatt. Yes? Fernet, you're talking about Manst and Grebel? Fernando, they very well could have been in the literature that I read about them in their conflict with Zwingli. The, the issue that divided them was over infant baptism. That was the big issue. It's very possible, though, Fernando, that they also embraced the Sabbath. Very possible. A glatt born at Charm in the upper... Uh, Palatinate later came to serve a Lutheran congregation in Moravia. At first helping unite the evangelical groups, Glatt became an Anabaptist when 
Hubmeyer arrived the same year. Uh, let's see. When Glatz sided with the radical Anabaptist, Hans Hutt against the use of the sword. One year later, they were both exiled. Um, let's see. Glatz appears to have become a Sabbatarian there where he published a lost tract concerning the keeping of the Sabbath. Glatt taught that the Seventh-day Sabbath is binding on Christians just as it was on the Jews of old because it is enjoined in the Decalogue. And that's the website where I got that. It's concordiatheology.org uh, slash 2010 slash 05 slash Luther. So, folk, right there you have the rise of Sabbatarian Christians in the 1520s. Next slide. Menno, Menno Simons was another man. Um, he was a Catholic, became a Protestant. And the underlying part says he soon after witnessed in a neighboring village the beheading of a man who was put to death for having been rebaptized. This led him to study the Bible in regard to infant baptism. He could find no evidence for it in the scriptures but saw that repentance and faith are everywhere required as the condition of receiving baptism. Menno withdrew from the Roman church, devoted his life to teaching the truths which he had received. That's in Great Controversy, pages 238 and 239. Awesome reformer, Menno Simons. Next slide, sweetie. Now, there were other people among the... the stepchildren amongst the second front that I would call weirdos. Okay? That's the word I chose. Ellen White uses the word fanatical. Um, it's in Great Controversy, pages, page 186. It says, uh, Satan was not idle. He attempted what he has attempted in every other ref Reformation movement to deceive and destroy the people by palming off upon them a counterfeit in place of the true work. As there were false Christs in the first century, so there arose false prophets in the 16th. A few men deeply affected by the excitement in the religious world imagined themselves to have received special revelations from heaven, claimed to have been divinely commissioned to carry forward to its completion the reformation which they declared had been but feebly begun by Luther. Uh, let's see, they rejected the great principle which was the very foundation of the Reformation that the word of God is the all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. Uh, one of these prophets claimed to have been instructed by the angel Gabriel, a student who united with him, forsook his studies, declaring that he had been endowed by God himself with wisdom to expound his word. The proceedings of these enthusiasts created no little excitement. It was fanaticism. Next slide, sweetie. This guy was probably the chief among them. Great Controversy talks about him, pages 191 and 192. His name was Thomas Munster. Munster believed that the sole authority was the voices that he heard in his brain. That he could throw out the Bible, throw out the Bible, because the Spirit of God was speaking directly to his mind, separate from Scripture. And as a result, Munster, this, this is what makes it confusing. See, Thomas Munster combined just enough truth with enough poison. 
Thomas Munster also believed that infant baptism was wrong. You see? And so a lot of people, a lot of historians, when they write about the Second Front or the radical reformers, they couple the Anabaptists together with Munster. You see, and that's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. Thomas Munster also believed, as I studied, I'm not going to be able to read all this. Thomas Munster believed that the way for the Reformation to go forward was to slaughter anybody that got in your way. And that's what Munster did. His followers, they took up the sword and they went hacking and slaughtering people. And Munster was the man who was responsible for the peasants' revolt right around 1524-1525 in which thousands of people were, were destroyed, were killed. Next slide, sweetie. Martin Luther was accused of causing the peasants' revolt. They said, the Catholic Church said, well, the peasants thought that they had freedoms because Luther said they, they did. Therefore, the peasants said, our freedoms are being taken away by the authorities, so now we're going to fight. And that's what happened in the peasants' revolt. I noticed in this statement from Wikipedia, it says, Munster led a group of about 8,000 peasants at the Battle of Frankenhausen in 1525 against political and spiritual oppression, convinced that God would intervene on their side. Utterly defeated, captured, imprisoned, and tortured, Munster recanted and accepted the Catholic Mass prior to his beheading on May 27, 1525. This became known as the Peasants' Revolt because of some of Munster's doctrines were similar to the Anabaptists. He didn't believe in infant baptism. And because some of Munster's ideas were like Luther's, this revolt was charged on Luther and the Bible-believing Anabaptists. Next slide. Parallels today? It's amazing. The denomination is in apostasy just as Rome was in that day. Some wanted to maintain ties to the church and obey its dictates just as Luther, Zwingli, and the like did in the 16th century. Some wanted to spread the whole truth throughout the world as the Anabaptists did. Some fanatics arose drawing people after them. We have that today with those who say keep the feast days, there's no Holy Spirit, the church is Babylon, and so many other things. And my hope, folk, is, is that we will stand with the people called the Anabaptists who said, we've got to spread the truth through evangelism and we've got to stand on the Word of God in every doctrine. It's incredible, folk, the parallels between the 16th century Reformation and what is happening today. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for starting to build the bridge that I could never see when I was studying history. Thank you that there's a bridge that connects us 
to people way back in the Reformation. And we're not connected to Luther or Zwingli or Calvin, but we're connected to the quiet people who wanted to follow your word wherever it led them and then wanted to share it with everybody throughout the places where they lived. Father, thank you for those people and I just pray that you would strengthen us to carry the torch, to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us and to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. Father, help us to pass that test. In Jesus' name, amen.